0: How about I pray for us? Father, we thank you uh, that you have given us this time to consider who you are and uh, how we uh, think about you and how we can explain our faith to others. Help us uh, to, to give attention uh, to how we engage uh, with those that have questions uh, Father, that we would be um, prepared and, and and kind in our response, and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week we started a, a class called Defending the Faith Part 2. Uh, we, we dealt with the first part last semester, uh, dealing uh, with different worldviews. This semester we're dealing uh, with some of the difficult questions that uh, Christians sometimes face. We want to help you think through those questions and concerns that uh, sometimes unbelievers may have, and they ask you. Now, I'm not talking about those who want to simply argue for argument's sake, they're just looking for sort of a gotcha moment, but rather people whose questions uh, rise out of uh, a conflict in their mind between a Christian worldview, what we say God is like, versus what they experience in the world. The world is filled with suffering and pain and evil, and so how does that fit together with a all-powerful, all-loving, all-good God. We should really be sympathetic uh, to those who have questions, Uh, those who find it difficult to overcome the obstacles in their mind, Uh, because that was us at one point, wasn't it? Uh, There was a time when we did not believe and the Christian faith uh, didn't make sense to us uh, they're, well, they're nice people, but uh, they seem a little crazy to me. Um, but God, in His mercy, called our name, breathed life into us, and opened our minds so that we might understand the truths of God. And so now we seek to love God and our neighbor, and we seek to love God with what? All of our heart. All of our soul, all of our strength, and all of our mind. How do we love God with our mind? By taking every thought captive to the lordship of Christ and to oppose every argument and lofty uh, idea that's raised against the knowledge of God. We love God with our minds, as we give some attention to our area of life, wherever it is that you live, whatever it is that you do, to consider what does God have to say about it. Why do you do the things you do, and how are you to do it to His glory? The the verse that we've looked at again and again is 1 Peter 3.15. But in your hearts, sanctify Christ as Lord, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. You Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Do you have a hope in Christ? Why? Uh, Consider why you believe what you believe and what difference does it make in your life. Really, what we're trying to do is think about how to apply Scripture to everyday life. And so, we use Scripture in this apologetic endeavor as our ultimate authority. God gave us His Word. He breathed it out for what? To teach us reprove, correct, and train us in righteousness that we might be equipped for every good work. We live in God's world. And so God's Word is the only interpretation of, of our reality that will ultimately make sense of all of our experiences. And because we live in God's world, all of us, believer and non-believer, because we live in the world that God created, we have everything in common. Yet, we have nothing in common because they totally think about the world in a different way and so what we're bringing to them as they ask their question for the hope that's within us is a new interpretation of reality we're bringing them god's interpretation of how they are to think and process and so we need to develop a worldview shaped by god and his word so that we can understand our life differently. We need to grow in our understanding of the Word so that we can give a defense, so that we can share the hope that we have. Really, all this is doing is asking us to Christian discipleship. We are to, to live, speak, and respond to others as those whose thought life and their actions have been shaped by God and His Word. Tonight, uh, the the tough question that we ask is, how can we know that God exists? Uh, We're starting at the beginning. Now, historically, uh, what's called classical apologetics would use what they call the proofs for God, the arguments that they think demonstrate that God exists. And there's some value to these arguments. Uh, There's numbers of them, um, some more helpful than others, but ultimately they fall short. Uh, They cannot prove God. At best, they prove the likelihood Of some being out there somewhere they're built upon the idea of an autonomous human reason with the assumption of a supposed neutrality of information and and they can be used in our apologetics as long as we understand that ultimately uh, they're not our authority and they're not going to change anybody uh, I'll mention uh, three of these common proofs, and, and I'm going to use, um, uh, not to be wordy, but I'm going to use the formal names for them so that when you come across them in uh, Christian literature, you'll know what they are. And, and then we'll, after I describe them, we'll talk about some of their strengths and some of their weaknesses. And then we'll perhaps uh, 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 then compare that uh, to, to how the Bible then interprets uh, reality for us. The, per, the first proof is called the cosmological argument, and it goes something like this Everything in the universe has a cause, the idea of cause and effect. Therefore, the universe itself must have a cause, in other words, it must have a beginning. And that cause of such a great universe can only be explained by a great God. Well, how did the universe begin? Some have asked the question why is there something rather than nothing? Where did the universe come from? What was its first cause? And the argument says that God is the first and great cause of everything. Now, historically, secular scientists had a response. And what they would say is that uh, energy and matter always existed, that they are eternal. And they thought that solved the problem. Uh, But in the wake of the Big Bang theory, the evidence that our universe is expanding outwardly from a single point of reference makes that answer inadequate. It's interesting, even um, Stephen Hawkins, uh, the physicist that died just a couple of years ago who was an atheist, uh, wrote this. He says, almost everyone now believes that the universe and time itself had a beginning at the Big Bang. Even science now has to acknowledge there was a time when nothing existed. Now, what caused the Big Bang? We don't know. That's what they would say. Uh, but uh, it seems to me that, that uh, uh, though they're not willing to admit it, science is just explaining the world the way the Bible does. What does the Bible say? Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and earth. Before that moment, there was nothing but God. And, and, you know, most of life we tend to think of nothing as space. There was just this vast space. There was no space. Space is a created thing. There was nothing. And then God spoke creation into existence. He created everything out of nothing. He is the God of first causes. Everything in the world is contingent upon something. It has a cause outside of itself, and God is the only explanation for the beginning of time, space, and matter. That's how that argument would go, and there's some some points to it that are persuasive. Uh, The second argument is the teleological argument. Uh, It's related to the first. This argument says there is a apparent harmony, order, and purpose and design in our universe. Our universe appears to be designed for a purpose, so there must be an intelligent and purposeful God who created it to function that way. Uh, Francis Collins, who is the Uh, The director of the National Institute of Health, um, who uh, uh, I'm not sure, he says he's a believer. I'm not sure what he believes. Uh, As I read about him, I I couldn't quite uh, understand. Maybe uh, he speaks in a language that's way above my head. I don't know. Uh, But he said this when you look from the perspective of a scientist at the universe, it looks as though it knew we were coming. And then he talks about that there are these 15 scientific constants that have to exist at the same time in the right proportions for the universe to actually exist and for us to live. If any of these 15 constants were off by even one in a million parts... The galaxies, the stars, the planets, the people would cease to exist. God designed a reality for us, and now He sustains that reality so precisely that it's possible for life. And that God maintains the regularity of this universe for life so that we can function. In the the Genesis, he says, uh, be fruitful and multiply and take dominion over the earth. How could we have done that if the earth wasn't regulated by God? If the, quote, laws of science didn't work? That gravitation worked one day, but the next it didn't that the fact that God regulates the universe allows us to do science. Matter of fact, it allows us to do anything that we do because God created it and God sustains it. That's the second argument. The third will be much shorter. It's called the ontological argument. And it says... God is defined as a being which nothing greater can be imagined. If we can imagine such a being, then it argues that God must therefore exist since it is greater to exist than not to exist. Now, there have been a lot of people in human history that found that argument persuasive. I am not one of them. I don't even know what that meant. Uh, It doesn't make any sense to me, and I've been exposed to it a dozen times in my life. Uh, But it's one of the arguments. The problem with these proofs for God, as we think about them, is uh, as we begin to... Uh, uh, critique them and and think about what's good and what's not, we have to keep uh, two foundational principles in mind as we do our apologetics. And these are things that we talked about several times uh, last semester. The first principle is that there's no such thing as autonomy. Humanity is not the ultimate source of wisdom and authority. We are not a law unto ourselves. We do not determine what is true and what is not. Only God can do that. Everything we think in ourselves is simply our opinion. We are not autonomous, independent of God, but rather we are dependent on God to properly understand. And define our world, our self, and how we fit in it. Only God, only God has the authority and the right to tell us who we are and what we're to be. The second foundational principle is that there is no neutrality, there are no brute facts or bare facts. Everything is an interpretation. Every single person has certain presuppositions about the universe, certain commitments that they've already made that shape how they think and interpret their world. There are no uninterpreted facts. What we already believe about God and ourselves shapes how we see the world. I was just talking to Paul Chubb on Saturday and I remember uh, back in the '90s, uh, P- uh, James Kennedy. He used to do these apologetic shows on Saturday night on ABC at seven o'clock. Does anyone remember those at all? Or, huh? Yeah, DJ. What did I call him? There you go. Um, Dr. Kennedy was a pastor down in Florida, and I remember watching. It was the proof for the for the resurrection. And as you're listening, you're going, it's so obvious that it's true. But that's because I already believe that. The world doesn't believe that people come back from the dead. And so they see it and they think, what a bunch of nonsense. Why would Christians actually believe that? They're already committed to a worldview and a belief that doesn't accept the reality that there is a God. So of course they don't see God anyplace. place. We have no autonomy. There, are, there is no neutrality. And so, with these foundational principles in place, let's consider the, quote, proofs for God. Uh, the, my first observation is that the proofs tend to ignore, this is a problem with them, they tend to ignore the reality of humanity's fallen nature. Uh, and They almost deny our depravity. Uh, Thomas Aquinas, who lived in the 13th century, really is a father, one of the fathers of the proofs for God. And he would argue that the, the, the human reason of an unfallen creature can come to the knowledge of God. That's his foundational belief. Um, but because of our depravity, we deny God. Now, depravity doesn't mean... Uh, that we're as evil as we possibly could be. But what it means is that uh, sin has touched us to the deepest level of who we are. That sin has shaped and distorted everything about us. Our emotions, our will, even our reasoning has been corrupted by sin that's why paul says in first corinthians uh, 2 that the natural man cannot understand the truths of god for they are what spiritually discerned the proofs as they're given are built on the foundation of the unfallen of the fallen mind that can understand and accept the truths of god and that's not what the bible says And we'll look at that in a little bit. The second uh, issue that I I take with the proofs is that they buy into the myth of uh, uh, neutrality. Uh, The proofs assume fallen humanity as a blank slate, ready to be convinced in the validity of the proofs for God, rather than what we see in Scripture. That we deny the truth in our nature because we are opposed to God. We have uh, presuppositions that determines what we believe, and any new information is in interpreted according to those presuppositions. Unbelievers already don't believe in God. And so the proofs don't change that. Um, I I think I might have used this story last semester, but when my wife was in uh, dental school, um, she was in gross anatomy, and uh, the professor was talking about a number of things that have to happen at the same time in the human body for us to live at birth. I was telling my wife at dinner that I was sharing this story, she says, you got to get the details right. And then she started to tell me the details and it sounded like blah, 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 blah. If you want to know them, you can speak to her. Something something about a nerve and a diaphragm and your heart. Uh, The the actual details uh, are not the point that I thought was important, but as, as Jennifer saw this amazing process that God designed that happens at birth, in her mind, she thought, how can you look at this and not believe in God? In class, right there was evidence that God exists. The complexity and the functioning of the human body. As she was thinking that thought, a fellow student said, how can anyone look at this and believe in God? The same reality, a different interpretation. And they both interpreted according to their presuppositions. They both saw what they already Believed The third issue I have with the peruse is that they, in the end, they put us in the driver's seat. We become the person who judges the truthfulness of God. We become the final authority. And so we get to decide for ourselves whether God exists or not whether he should be believed or not. It's the same sin as the Garden of Eden, isn't it? We will judge. We will decide truth. We will decide what is right and wrong. We want God to put on a show for us in a way that we find credible. We want to put God under our microscope. But the truth is that he speaks, and he has revealed himself, and he interprets himself in his word. But mankind is not willing to accept that. But if only you would show yourself. You know what that sounds like? It sounds like the Pharisees when Jesus was on the cross, doesn't it? If you're God, if you're the Son of God, come on down. We'll believe then. He could have come off the cross and they still wouldn't believe. He, he raised Lazarus. He raised a man from the dead. And what did they want to do? Let's kill Lazarus and kill Jesus. The sinful heart does not submit itself to God. Now, these proofs, as I presented them are valid in that they correctly evaluate the evidence and give true conclusions. The universe does have God who is the first cause. The universe does demonstrate the purposefulness of design by God. However, everyone who considers these proofs is not convinced. They are not compelled to believe. And as I said at the beginning, these proofs at best demonstrate the probability that some higher being exists but it doesn't demonstrate the one true God as revealed in Scripture. So what good are they? It's interesting, Pastor Tim Keller, who uh, uh, just retired about a year ago from Redeemer Presbyterian Upper Manhattan, uh, he says, I don't call them proofs; I call them clues. They don't prove God, but together they point to the rationality of the Christian worldview found in Scripture. It it, it declares that we have a a, a reasoned, sensible faith. The the value of these clues lies mainly in not proving the existence of God, but overcoming the intellectual objections of some unbelievers. Those who are struggling and, and, and they can't make sense of it all, that through the spirit the heart of an unbeliever can be stirred in such a way that they start to awaken from their from their haze and so they're ready to consider and listen to god's word as god speaks authoritatively there and saves them these clues or proofs cannot bring unbelievers to saving faith for that comes only through the witness of Scripture. And Scripture is god breathe, exhale from God as the inerrant, sufficient witness of Himself. And so, with that in mind, I'm going to ask you to turn to uh, uh, two passages of Scripture. And as we look at them, we'll see that the fingerprint of God is in the created world, and it's evident to everyone. But because of sin, they deny what they, what they know to be true. Yet the Bible declares to us that the nature is sufficient to reveal God. And so it leaves us without excuse. Uh, the two passages that I want you to look at are Psalm uh, 19 and Romans 1. And I want you to you know, either put a, a piece of paper or your finger in both because we're going to go back and forth and compare them as we try to have an understanding of how God interprets Himself in the created order. And this is uh, uh, Philippian, or uh, Psalm 19, verses 1 and 2. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day-to-day, our our speech, day-to-day, would somebody read that? My quote's wrong. Huh? Day-to-day pours out speech. Thank you. Day-to-day, mine says ours. Day-to-day pours out speech and night-to-night reveals knowledge. Creation reveals knowledge. God, Not just some God, but the one true God. This Word of God revealed in creation is heard by everyone. There is none that do not hear it or know God. Verse 3 and 4, For there is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. The heavens declare the glory of the Lord. They speak the existence of God to every living being on the face of the planet. Look at uh, Romans 1, beginning in verse 18. For the wrath of God... ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse Uh, bertrand russell who was a philosopher and atheist said that when he gets to heaven and if there is a god what he's going to say is there was not enough evidence The Bible says there's more than sufficient. God reveals Himself, His nature and His power in the things that He created so that everyone knows God. As we're engaging with non-believers, they just don't know that there is a God. They know the one true God. God made them to know Him. But they have so suppressed that truth in their unrighteousness, that they're not even conscious of it. Look at verse 21 to 25 of Romans 1. For although they knew God, they did not honor God or give Him thanks. But, but they became futile in the thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Humanity cannot deny the truth that they know. Wherever you go in the world, there are people who are worshiping. Every, every false religion is simply humanity suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. They're called. They know that there's one true God. Their heart, their being tells them that, and that He deserves worship. Yet they refuse to worship Him. And so they worship something else. Because they cannot deny that they are worshipers. Creation declares God's existence, and so we are without excuse as we suppress that truth in an unrighteousness. As image bearers, the knowledge of God is within us, but we deny it. Back in. Psalm 19, you can go back there. In verses 1 to 6, uh, David, who wrote the psalm, uh, glories in the light of God's revelation in nature. But then he starts talking about the law. Look at verse 7. Uh, and I, and I, throughout I'm going to use the, uh, um, the name Yahweh. Uh, When you see Lord in small caps, that's God's name. And Jews would not take the Lord's name in vain, so they wouldn't say His name. So, they would just say Lord. So, that became a practice. Uh, The law of Yahweh is perfect, reviving the soul, soul. The testimony of Yahweh is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of Yahweh are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of Yahweh is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of Yahweh is clean, enduring forever. The rules of Yahweh are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even more than fine gold. Sweeter also are they than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them, there is great reward." As you you read Psalm 19, the the change of topic is kind of jarring, but the author is not really changing the topic. Uh, Just as the creation is the first great light of God's self-revelation in creation, the law of God is the second great light of God's revelation in nature. All of nature, including the law, reveals God. How? The law reveals the character of God, what He is like. It's an expression of His righteousness. What's interesting, in, in Psalm 19, verses 1 to 6, where uh, uh, it's talking about the heavens declaring the glory of the Lord... Uh, God is referred to as Elohim, which is is the word for God. He is the Creator. He is the Powerful and Mighty One. However, beginning in verse 7, instead of using the word Elohim for God, it's using the name of God, Yahweh, as He's revealed Himself to the Jews, meaning He is the covenant-keeping, redeeming God who is holy and holy And gracious and then in verse 10 11 that Yahweh's law God's law is better than gold sweeter than honey it warns the sinner and uh, 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 rewards the obedient God's law is his interpretation of reality it tells us how we're supposed to live he placed it in us at creation And so, it warns us how to live. What's interesting, we see this again in Romans 1. Flip back. Paul uh, Paul has talked about how we suppress the truth of God in unrighteousness. God has revealed Himself in nature, but we've exchanged the glory of, the, of God for uh, the image of created things, and we're worshiping the creation rather than the Creator. Then down in verse 28, he says this, those that deny the truth, those who suppress the truth, those who turn away from God, and since they, these sinners, these unbelievers, did not seem fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what they ought not to be done what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. they are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, they are gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, Uh, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Then what does it say? Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them but give hearty approval to those who practice them as well the unbeliever knows in some way the righteous character of god that's part of what god placed in them through the creation even prior to the giving of the law at sinai we see evidence of uh, uh, of the 10 commandments in the old testament the Sabbath was made holy when? At creation. Adam and Eve uh, uh, coveted to be like God. Cain is condemned for killing his brother Abel. Abraham is wrong to lie about his wife Sarah. Jacob and Esau both dishonored their parents. Jacob puts away, uh, is told to put away foreign gods. Laban stole from Jacob by changing his wages. Joseph knows it's a sin to commit adultery. All of those things are wrong. How did they know it was wrong? If we don't see the Ten Commandments yet. The law of God hasn't been given on the mountain. Yet somehow humanity knew the morality of God. Now our present world... Denies God, and it says that morality is just a human construct, something we've agreed to live by. But no matter what people say, everyone believes that there are things that are absolutely evil. Uh, Again, Paul and I were just talking about this on Saturday. Uh, In the 1960s, there was a, a Christian who was debating. A Jewish atheist and the the atheist was saying that there is not so there's no such thing as morality there's no such thing as evil and the Christian simply asked what about the holocaust and the Jewish man just stopped thought for a moment and he said yeah that was evil or there was a man a, uh, a guy that I met at a coffee shop in Philadelphia. His name was Jack, Uh, uh, it was a coffee shop across from the apartment that we lived in when we first moved there, and Jack was a regular in this coffee shop. And so we struck up a friendship, and I remember that like uh, 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 the Jewish atheist, this Jack uh, didn't believe in right and wrong. I can do whatever I want, nobody can tell me what's right, nobody can tell me what's wrong, those are just made up things. And then one day he told me about how his wife left him and mistreated him in, in pretty atrocious ways. And so I asked him, was she wrong? Did she do you wrong? Was she evil in doing that? And he had to say that she was. Contemporary thinkers say there's nothing, uh, there's nothing that we can call wrong. Wrong. But at the same time, what does the world say about uh, the Christian worldview? That it's wrong and it's intolerant. Everyone believes in some standard outside themselves that determines right and wrong. The question is, where does that come from? If there is no God then there is no objective standard of morality outside of ourselves and we cannot know what is true we were created in the image of God to know God to reflect his righteous character uh, and so he made us as rational moral beings who know God know God's law and that should guide how we think about right and wrong. Created in His image, our, our, per, our personhood knows not just in some divine being, but in uh, God as He's revealed Himself in nature and Scripture. Our own understanding of, of right and wrong tells us that there is one who is righteous who made us, and everything else. The created reality is God revealing Himself, demonstrating who He is. But in the end, this revelation we find in nature, which is called general revelation, cannot save us. It just leaves us without excuse, and so it condemns us. What we need is special revelation, which is God's Word. We need uh, God to reveal Himself, not just as Creator and Judge, but to reveal Himself as a good and gracious God who has mercy on those who come to Him and humble themselves before Him. We need God's Word to reveal the grace and the mercy of of God that can only be found in the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Speaking about uh, proving the existence of God, this is what uh, Wayne Grudem says. He says, for those who are correctly evaluating the evidence, everything in Scripture and everything in nature proves clearly that God exists and that He is a powerful and wise Creator. And then Grudem says, therefore, when we believe that God exists, we are basing our belief not on some blind hope apart from any evidence but on an overwhelming amount of reliable evidence from God's Word and God's work. Will you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, um, help us uh, to see You in everything that You made, uh, and help us uh, to give ourselves wholeheartedly to your word that interprets for us how we are to think and how we're to live in light of who you are. Uh, Father, we need your spirit uh, to enlighten our minds. We need your spirit to conform our hearts uh, to who you are, and that's what you have promised to do. And so uh, may we give ourselves to that work uh, daily, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.